you'll, you'll get a little, a little handout. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 23. You'll see on the outline uh, a title, uh, a thesis, a outline of how I see the passage break down, and that will, that will guide our look at the text this morning. But uh, we want to pray, and we want to ask that the Spirit of God would, would guide our look at the text this morning. So bow with me in prayer. Father, Father in heaven, we stand needy this morning of your grace. Um, there may be some in our midst more acutely aware of their neediness. Um, I might be at the top of the list this morning. Uh, Father, I need your grace, I need your mercy to declare accurately and clearly uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see very clearly in Psalm 23 that Jesus is our good shepherd, that he is indeed also the Lamb of God, led to the slaughter for us and now shepherding us. May, Father, my prayer this morning, may those here who don't know you yet, may they hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling to them, come to me this morning, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And may the rest of us be shepherded and fed by the very voice of Christ in the preached word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you view God day by day, week by week, month after month. What's your prevailing, overarching view of God is? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're struggling with even the idea of God, the existence of God. And uh, we want you to know at Liberty, there's a place for you to, to, to wrestle with that and work that out. Uh, as you sit under the preached word. Uh, one theologian, A.W. Tozer, is famous for this line where he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We can kind of tend to think in terms of extremes, focusing maybe on the one hand on God's sovereignty, his, his absolute power, and he's ruling and he's a transcendent God. The Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable lights. And if we focus merely on that, then, then maybe God is a little distant to us. Maybe just an abstract concept or idea. On the other hand, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That God is, is very close to us. And if we focus merely on that, then perhaps we can sort of domesticate God. God becomes um, one of us, not really that different from us. But you know, the scriptures don't make us choose. Uh, the scriptures constantly hold these things together. In Psalm 23, King David pens a psalm of confidence. Confidence in his God and good shepherd, beautifully blending numerous aspects of, of who God is and how he works on behalf of his own. David offers us in this psalm, a very well-known psalm, what might best be described as a, as a sheep's 
eyed view of God. God from the, from the perspective of a sheep. David. If you know anything about David before he became this great king over Israel, David was a little shepherd boy. Acutely, keenly aware of what it means to be a shepherd and what it means to be a sheep. And David, the shepherd boy turned king of Israel, shepherd of the people of God, uses the sheep-shepherd metaphor to describe his own relationship with God. David knows how this works. And he puts himself in the position of sheep and God in position as shepherd. If you understand or have any idea the kind of relationship that exists between sheep and their shepherd, you know then that David is not flattering himself. This is not a boast. He's the king. At this time, one of the most powerful men in the world. He's not flattering himself. Rather, he's extolling and esteeming God. Sheep were needy. Dependent creatures. And as one writer puts it, they are singularly unintelligent. They're prone to wander and known to be unable to find their way back to the sheepfold, even when the sheepfold is within sight. This is quite unlike goats or many other animals, cats, dogs. They know how to get home. Sheep, not so much. The job of a shepherd was never done. I said that. David here offers a sheep's eyed view of God. What he offers in Psalm 23 really is sort of a day in the life of a sheep, shepherded by a good shepherd, a caring shepherd, God himself. The routine was basically as follows. It was the task of the shepherd to lead his sheep from the nighttime protection of the sheepfold, and they would do it by calling them out by name. I'll explain that a little bit more in a little bit leading them along paths to places of grazing and watering. After morning grazing and watering, sheep typically lie down for several hours at midday in a shady and cool place returning at night to the sheepfold where the shepherd would attend to fevered and scratched sheep. Sheep are dumb, they're weak, and needy. David shows us by this metaphor how we Sinful human beings relate to holy God. So, so here is the main idea, the main thrust, I think, that this passage calls us to. May we follow Jesus, the slain lamb who is our good shepherd, and may we do so with great contentment and confidence in him. And I see this passage unfolding this reality really in two main ideas in the first three verses. It's calling us to great contentment in our good shepherd. Great contentment in our good shepherd. And then verses 3 through 4, or 4 through 6 rather, great confidence in our good shepherd's leading. Great confidence in our good shepherd's leading. Let's look now at verses 1 through 3. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It's a very familiar passage to many of us. Maybe if you've never really been in the church, it may still even be a very familiar passage. 
Uh, the, the danger with familiarity is oftentimes once we become familiar with something, we kind of lose the, the wonder of it. And I don't want that to happen to us this morning. I can remember when we first moved to Vermont. It's a, it's a state in the northeast in the U.S. It's beautiful. It's in the mountains. Uh, our house right out the front window, or I'm sorry, right out the kitchen window, rather, was Mount, Mount Mansfield, this beautiful mountain. And I mean, for at least the first week or two, we were like, wow, look at the view. We have like the best view in Chittenden County. You know, but after a month or two, and certainly year two, year three, it's like, Huh? It's a mountain. I know in America, Psalm 23 often gets associated with funerals. But brothers and sisters, Psalm 23 is not a funeral dirge. It's a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm not for the dead, but a psalm for the living. What this psalm communicates is actually quite profound and amazing. Yahweh, God, who created and spoke the world into existence with his very word, David says, Yahweh, God is my shepherd. The God who is the God over Israel and over all the nations is my personal shepherd. The emphasis in these three verses, again, is not on the greatness of King David, but on the greatness of God. He makes me. Do you notice the emphasis on that? He makes me lie down. He leads. He restores. He leads for his name's sake. It's the greatness of our good shepherd in providing for his own that's on display, pr- pr- producing a contented flock. The relationship between the first two lines, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or actually better rendered, I shall lack nothing, would be something like this. Either because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall lack no good thing. I said, I shall not want doesn't exactly communicate the essence of the text because the idea is better understood as as him producing contentment. Not, not that God, if you're going to follow the God who is there, the God who really exists, is going to give you everything that you want if you follow him. Uh, that's not the nature of the gospel. That's not the nature of salvation. Rather, it's lacking nothing essential for livelihood. This is a statement of contentment, not abounding wealth. And he's going to unpack that in these next two verses. We need to remember that this is a sheep's eyed view of God. This isn't a princess eyed view of God. This isn't an American dream eyed view of God. This isn't a prosperity gospel eyed view of God where God's sole purpose is to get us stuff, where we treat God as, as a means to an end. Like, I want to come to God because I want stuff. He's going to give me stuff. No, that, 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 that it's Him leading, shepherding bringing contentment to our souls. And that's the nature of the metaphor, necessities of life, green pastures. Sheep need very basic things. They need fresh, lush grass. They need, they, they, they need a place to lie down where the shepherd causes them to lie down. It's a picture of tranquility that he causes them to lie down in green pastures. Sheep are skittish little animals. Easily startled, leading them beside still waters, little lagoon-like areas critical 
to the sheep's well-being, moving water like a river or a, creek, or a quick-moving creek that actually presents uh, peril for the sheep. They could be caught up in a rapid and, and whisk away quickly. And that often happens to them. He restores my soul, David says. Again, this is the provision of necessity, food, and drink. Well, what's the point here? Sheep? Is that really what David's getting at here? No. The, the point is our spiritual well-being. The sheep shepherd theme runs throughout Scripture. Psalm 80, God is called the shepherd of Israel. Moses and Aaron were designated as shepherds of the people of God. Joshua, David himself. Those given the responsibility to lead God's people, the priests, the judges, the kings, were shepherds over the flock of God, and they were to feed the sheep of God, feeding them with the word of God. In fact, it's later in Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the wicked and sinful leaders over Israel for being bad shepherds who fed upon the sheep rather than feeding the sheep, who fleeced the sheep. Rather than caring for and feeding them, God promises over and over again in that passage to come and shepherd his flock himself. And then he concludes in Ezekiel 34, 23, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. You need to understand, David has been dead for 400 years at this point. But God made a promise to David that he would have a son that would, that would sit on his throne forever and ever. And that son is Jesus. In Mark's gospel, second book in the New Testament, in retelling Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000, he records how Jesus looks on the crowds and he had compassion on them because, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus ordered them to sit down on the green grass. And then he proceeded to miraculously feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two dinky little fish, a kid's lunch. And Mark 6 records that they ate and were all satisfied you see, he led them into green pastures. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3 said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In John's gospel, eating and drinking become metaphors for faith. Believing in Jesus becomes eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And no, this is not cannibalism. Again, that's in the context of the feeding of 5,000 in John 6. Then in John 10, 11, we hear Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And again in verses 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you, are, you, are you tracking with this progression this morning? The way we rightly read the words of David here is through Christ, who is ultimately the good shepherd. 
The great necessity of us all, that the restoration of our souls is ultimately not that we need something to drink or something to eat, but that we need the full forgiveness of sins. The problem is we need our souls restored to God because there's a broken relationship between ourselves, those who have been created in his image, and the one who loves us and created us for his glory. And things aren't right, and you know that. If you're here this morning, you may not even know why you're here this morning. And, and there's, a, there's a weightiness to you and about you. And this Christianity thing is very new to you. And maybe you feel like anxious or you, you know something's not right. And that feeling is that you're not rightly related to the God who made you for himself. And the restoration is that you need this good shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Early in John's gospel, they see him. And they say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus brings restoration to us by coming down, the very Son of God becoming a man, walking in our shoes. He enters into our brokenness. The very world created through him, broken by our sin and our rebellion, he now enters into he lives a perfect life, perfectly living, loving, and obeying the Father where we have perfectly broken God's law and rebelled and done it our way and boasted about it even. And then Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. He goes to the cross dying as a curse-bearing, sin-atoning, wrath-assuaging substitute. He's hanged naked, nailed to a cross between two other criminals because we were criminals committing treason against the king of the universe. And he did that so that he might bring us back to God, restore us to God. He restores our souls to God by blotting out our sins on the cross. And the cross work of Christ is applied to our souls when we hear the word of the gospel preached, hearing with faith, God by his spirit applies that to our souls and we're born again. Maybe this morning you're hearing Jesus as I'm speaking Maybe you're hearing Jesus saying to you this morning, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. For that's the call of Christ. It's the nature of salvation and faith. Have you heard that voice? Are you hearing him even now? Call out to him. You can do that right now, even where you are. You don't have to close your eyes. You can, in your soul, cry out to him to save you. To take away your sins. To bring you back to God. To make you his very own. 
And the glory is this gospel that saves this good news that, that Jesus died and was raised again. This good news is not only the gospel that saves us, it's the gospel that transforms and continues to satisfy our souls. So if you're in Christ, we should never get bored with hearing this because this is what continues to renew and refresh and restore our souls to God. It's our shepherd continuing to lead us by his voice, satisfying us with his word. Christ-centered preaching from the whole Bible. This is the primary means of grace. This is how he grows us into Christ's likeness. This is what restores our souls to God in conversion and in constant renewal. We, we ought to love the preached word. We, we ought to really pay attention to the preaching. And I don't say that because I'm the one preaching this morning. I'm, I'm normally not the one preaching. I mean, this ought to affect the way we spend Saturday nights. I would, I would encourage people not to be out so late that you drag in and you're so tired you can't even really listen on Sunday mornings. We ought to come prayerful, attentive, hungry, expecting to hear from God. He leads us in right paths, paths of righteousness. These are literally right paths that lead to the good end for the sheep. Green pastures, still waters, that's the end. They're well-worn paths like ruts left by a wagon wheel. It's the route that Jesus continually leads us in. And the text says that he does this. He does this for the sake of his name. We have great contentment in Christ, our good shepherd, as he meets our needs fundamentally spiritual needs, renewing and restoring our souls to God through the preached word. And we have this great contentment because he shepherds us for his namesake. This is the end, the goal, the purpose of his leading. His glory. God's glory and our joyful contentment in him are not in competition what you mean it's not about me? No, it's not about you. And you ought to thank God that it's not about you. That it's about him and about his glory. Because that vouchsafes the fact that he's going to continue to restore, refresh, and renew, and bless you. God does all things for the sake of his name, for his own glory. It's the greatest security on our contentment. So I want to ask you this morning, are you a contented lamb? Lying down at peace, satisfied and resting in Christ. Are you contented in Christ? Let me be crystal clear this morning. Discontentment is death. It's, it's not like this neutral thing. Discontentment is death and we need to know that. You see, contentment is closely related to faith. Just like obedience, I would say obedience is like the shoe leather of faith. You say you believe God, none of us obey perfectly. But obedience is really us living out what we say we believe. And contentment is tightly connected to faith too. You can say, oh I believe, I believe, but if you're constantly discontent, and we know who you're blaming, I know who I'm blaming when I'm discontent. It, it ultimately isn't my wife, it's not my kids, it's not my, my job or my situation. Ultimately, I'm blaming God because I'm saying, well, you kind of are in control of everything. Contentment flows from a heart that's trusting in God's goodness toward us. What am I, what am I saying when I'm discontent? 
Our discontentment reveals unbelief. And one could argue that discontentment driven by pride was really at the heart of the fall in Genesis 3. Are we contented in God's provision or discontent and standing in judgment on God and his word and his ways? Those are the the two postures toward God. When when our circumstances are less than ideal, they're, they're less than what you desire, are you still content trusting in your good shepherd's leading? Let's be clear. Let's be clear. Your circumstances, my circumstances, don't determine whether we're content or discontent. They are merely the context in which our hearts are revealed. Paul in Philippians 4 shares the key to contentment. In in, in America, it's often wrenched out of context and used, you know, for winning an athletic game. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's talking about contentment. He's, He's praising God in joy for this church who just continues to support him as a missionary in the gospel. I know that thankfulness. I can resonate with Paul. But he says, look, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for the gift, he's saying, but I'm more thankful for your hearts in giving the gift. Because I I know how to get along with a little and I know how to get along with a lot. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? Because it's not about about where he's leading us per se, but that he's leading us and that he's with us. The presence of God in our life. That's what brings the contentment. Because he's enough. He's enough. The key to contentment is Christ. It is our trusting and treasuring Christ no matter the situation because he's enough. We must find great contentment in our good shepherd and we must confidently trust the leading of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. I love this. Because, because he was first the lamb of God led to the slaughter on our behalf. Listen to verses 4 through 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David's saying this, but Jesus is praying this too. Get it? Jesus is both our shepherd, but he's also been shepherded by the Father through death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Great confidence in our good shepherd's leading despite difficulty, suffering, and even death. En route to pasture land from the sheepfold, the paths taken by the shepherd might take the flock through a valley or what are called wadis, these dry stream beds, and there, notorious areas where ferocious animals were lurking, hiding in the shadows to pounce on unsuspecting sheep. It is important to understand both in the sheep-shepherd metaphor and in our actual walk with Christ that the good shepherd's leading of us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake will take us right through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me repeat that. It's important to understand both in the sheep shepherd metaphor and in our actual walk with God in Christ that the good shepherd's leading of us in paths of righteousness for his namesake will take us right 
through the valley of the shadow of death. Difficulty in life is not necessarily a wrong turn. God is not asleep at the wheel. Suffering should be expected for all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are clear. David is preparing. He's helping us to set our expectations. Folks, this is Christianity 101. If somebody lied to you and got you into church because they said it's your best life now, they did that. That's what they've done. They've lied to you. All throughout the Bible, it's not your best life now. It's your best life later. He's, he's going to talk about the end in, in verse 6, and we'll get to that. It's glorious. But, but we can't fail to see that what it means to be a Christian is that you're going to follow in the path of Christ. If our Savior went to the cross, was nailed to a cross, and he says, oh, by the way, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me daily, we shouldn't expect that we're going to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease while other brothers went through bloody seas, as the hymn says. We shouldn't expect that. About three years ago, Elizabeth and I were passing through one of our greatest of life's difficulties. We'd spent, I don't know, many, many years, myself before even meeting Elizabeth, a decade planning to, to move to New England, and this is the northeast of the U.S., and plant a church. And, and we did that. We moved and we spent two years starting a church from nothing. We got to about 26. And after about a year of struggling and, and wrestling and with lots of good counsel, we made the decision to pull out of the church plant. It felt like somebody died. It felt like a child died. My dream died. It was hard. It was the hardest it was the hardest moment and decision we had ever made, and that may sound, sound like nothing. I'm sure there are people who have suffered far worse. But, but I, I, I never knew depression until that time. It was depressing. Like I said, it felt like a death in the family. And during that time, this psalm became all the more sweet to me as the Bible does when you're struggling. And I was also reading about some other missionaries, some old, some new, who've buried children, wives. And was reading this one book uh, entitled The Insanity of God by a, uh, a guy named Nick Ripkin. That's not his real name. Anyway, he was a missionary to Somalia and it was so slow going, I and mean, it's not like different parts of Africa where people were coming to Christ left and right. It was so slow going. And, and one night he meets up with, I think it's like four or five other brothers to share the Lord's Supper together. And every one of those brothers on their way home was murdered. Murdered! And then I think within the same year or in the same time frame, his, one of his own sons, when he was back in Kenya, because he would go in and out of Somalia, he's back in Kenya, one of his own sons dies in his, in his arms, right? I mean, can you imagine the grief? I mean, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, oh, my, 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 my failed church plant's nothing. But why can we, why can you confidently, because this guy's confidently following Jesus today, why can we confidently follow the leading of our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, without fear, despite difficulty, suffering, even death? 
Well, quite simply because he, Jesus, is with us. And Jesus himself was led by his heavenly father through the valley of the shadow of death as our sacrificial lamb. Jesus put death to death through his death, burial, and resurrection. The Christian life is a cross-centered life. All of life's difficulties, all of life's difficulties, all of life's difficulties and trials must be, they have to be. You will lose it if they're not filtered through the cross. Nobody has suffered more than Jesus. Nobody has suffered more than God. He entered into our brokenness. He took it to himself. And Jesus bore all the wrath of God away to bring us back. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say, he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's why he's a faithful high priest. We don't have a God who doesn't get us, who can't understand us. Man, he took humanity to his, humanity to his deity and took our sin to himself. He'll never lead us where he hasn't himself first gone. That's a comforting thought. No matter what we're walking through, he suffered for us. He knows it intimately well, and our sufferings ought to lead us running to him in prayer. If we focus on the cross, if we remain clear that our good shepherd, who is right now shepherding, has gone before us. Says his rod and his staff, they comfort us. These were both offensive and defensive weapons for a shepherd. The latter being a walking stick with a crook that oftentimes he'd grab a sheep and save them if they fell into a hole or into the water. The rod, more of a smaller blunt object hurled at predators coming at the sheep. Just as the sheep were protected by their shepherd with the rod and staff, so we too, all who are truly in Christ, are kept by the power of God. Listen again to John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I think being in Jesus' hand and being in the Father's hand simultaneously is even better than a rod and a staff. Wouldn't you say? Even more comforting as we journey with Jesus. Verse 5 speaks of him leading us through certain triumph, preparing a table Likely, I think, continues the sheep shepherd motif, moving, removing poisonous weeds that can make the sheep sick or even kill them, anointing their head with oil, points to the shepherd caring for the sheep's scratches and wounds that they might have gotten en route to the resting place and an overflowing cup, the satisfaction of the sheep. The shepherd's leading is, has, has an end in view. The journey may seem long, it may seem windy, but rest assured our good shepherd knows the way and will see to it that we persevere to the end. Listen to verse 6 again. 
surely goodness and mercy, these are two very important terms in the Old Testament, shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's mercy his, and his covenant love. This translation that they'll follow me all the days of my life is kind of weak. The, the word actually is used in context quite often of like a predatory animal pursuing something or someone until it overtakes them. Now, uh, that whole metaphor is not in view, but this idea uh, is not that God's goodness and mercy are somehow lagging behind. Like they're following, they're, they're back there, just keep going, but that they're overwhelming us and overtaking us again and again and again. And what is the end the good shepherd is shepherding us toward? Our good shepherd is leading us to the eternal sheepfold. For David, for David it was the tabernacle, the temple. For us right now at this point in redemptive history, it's this. It's this. Do you know the Bible says that when we gather corporately, we are the temple of the living God, that his presence dwells in our midst in a way that he doesn't dwell with you at home in your prayer closet. That ought to motivate you to be to church on Sunday. Because, and you, it ought to also motivate us to show up expecting him to be here and to work in our lives. We're the temple of the living God. But both the temple and the church anticipate and point to the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal home. Listen to Revelation 7, 16 through 17. Speaking of the multitude before the throne in heaven, John the Apostle writes, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor scorching heat. Oh, listen to this. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is what Revelation 21 and 22 pick up. No more sin. A new creation. A new heavens and a new earth. Can you even imagine to dwell in God's presence, no longer broken by sin. I think about just how easily distracted I am. I can be worshiping this morning as Leonard leads us. And I'm like, oh, look, something shiny over there in the corner. I mean, I'm thinking just basic, even the ability to just fixate on God in glory, no longer encumbered by my broken, fallen body, but with a new resurrected body to perfectly be able to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. And it's the lamb in the midst of the, of the throne who's leading us to these springs of living water. You see, the lamb of God led to the slaughter is our shepherd king. And he's shepherding us every step of the way, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, would you work in us? I pray that you would give those who know you and love you a greater confidence. Lord, help us to lean deeply into you. 
oh, there's so many situations and circumstances, I'm sure, even in a small church like ours that people are walking through, and I pray that they would feel your loving kindness, your mercy overwhelming them as you shepherd them. And I pray, Father, for anyone here who does not know your son, that as I urged them earlier, that they would consider Christ. You are like no other God. No other religion has a God like you. Who enters into our brokenness, O oh God, and takes it to yourself to redeem us from what we've done toward you and to your creation. God, I pray that you would open blind eyes and cause hearts to long for you. In Christ's name, amen.